welcome to the Broom in the Tree podcast, where you get to listen to my conversations with renowned experts in all aspects of event management. My guests share with you their stories, their memories, their tips, tricks, and even some behind-the-scenes insights so that your next event, from a candlelit dinner to a wedding for thousands, creates beautiful memories. My name is Nikki Kennedy, and I get to help make people's dreams come true. Welcome back to the Broom in the Tree podcast. Let's chat about food. I'm chatting to Kathy Wendell from Creating Great Memories. She's been in the industry for many, many years. Well, for as long as I can remember. And she helps all the, de- the different clients design menus, create menus to suit your events, the tastes, your demographics. And she works in all the dietary requirements and just brings everything to the fore of what a great menu can do for your event. We know that there's a lot of dietaries involved, but we'll get down to those later on. So grab yourself a cup of tea or maybe a bottle of wine, sit back, relax, and let Kathy take you on this dream of creations, memories. Kathy, tell us why you went into food. What made you do what you do? Because I love it. I love food. I love to eat. I love the tastes. I love the textures. I love the colors. I just love food, which is why I'm so thin. (laughs) Okay, so just remember, this isn't a visual program. Tell me about the food. Give me the process. You know, for every job or every client, it's different. So it depends on what the occasion is, who the guests are going to be, what they're trying to achieve, not just with the food, but with the whole event, because sometimes the food is very important and sometimes it's just sustenance to keep them going. And also the guest lists, I think, often decide what you're going to do and what kind of food you're going to serve. Whether you're catering to your father and your grandfather and the family, or whether it's your clients or your guests or your staff. And of course, budget, budget, budget. Very important. Okay, tell us a little bit about the different kinds of foods. I mean, there's traditional South African, there's Mexican, there's Italian sushi. How would you go about deciding what food for each function? Is it the client that determines the theme, the food itself? And how would you work your menu to suit the theme? You know, often we are involved with exactly what they're doing, the whole project. They tell us what it is, and then I give them some ideas whether we're going to have pass-around food or serve food, plated. It depends on whether it's an all-day event or just a dinner, gala dinner, casual dinner, cocktail party. All of those things actually dictate what you're going to serve. And then I think also you have to look and see what time of the year it is, where it is, what's available, what's seasonal. I think planning, it's, it's usually a total involvement in their event. But very often we just get told we want to call a dinner menu and they give us no information. So then I have to do three or four menus and then they decide and then eventually we kind of drag out who's going to be there and what they they like to eat. You know, if you're doing a, a function for South African men, you pretty much want to make sure that there's meat, red meat. And if you're doing a function for 18-year-old girls, sushi's a pretty good bet. So I think you need to, if you're doing a function for 75-year-old men, a lot of them, sushi's not going to be hell of a popular. So I think mm-hmm. uh, that is one of the main 
issues, I think, is to decide and find out who's going to be there and what they would normally like to eat. And if you're having an event, you need to give them a treat. It's got to be special. You know, it can't be something that they would eat at home. Otherwise, yeah. what's the point of going out? So now that you've got all of these things, I mean, I know for myself, my very worst thing in life is lamb. However, I know that we have to give clients lamb. They love it on, that's what men eat. That's what people like. Have you had any odd foods? What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? And would you do it as a main thing or just as a little taster? You know, it depends on how brave your guests are. I think the most interesting um, item I've ever done is um, goosey soup, which is what? made with goat, and it's with the whole uh-huh. goat. I mean, every piece of the goat, even the gums, the teeth. It's really interesting. <laughs> Look, that's not a function that I would want to come <laughs> to if you're going to be serving goat. However, I've got to tell you, it was one of the tastiest things I've ever, ever eaten. I just had to make sure that I was careful with the pieces that I put on my plate. And it was such an interesting thing. The chef was amazing. I didn't attempt to make it. I just got the recipe and they were fantastic putting it together. But definitely it's not for everybody. So I've had goat a couple of times, but a goosey soup was definitely the most interesting. And I know (laughs) mapami worms are a traditional thing. I can just see these little slugs floating across the table. Oh, yeah, we've had Mopani worms quite often. I mean, that's a, that's a common thing. But that's usually is a served to international guests. And it's usually just a small sample because they want to know what it is. Very few of them even taste them. But you need to have them on the menu. Okay, so if everything's on this menu, now, once you've created your menu and you've got your the taste buds in your head, you now obviously now need to do food tastings with the clients. How would you go about it? What would you put onto the menu? How many people would you have at the table? What's the procedure that clients should follow? You know, it would be ideal if everybody could have a food tasting and for every event, but it's not always economically viable. And if it's a small event, to do a food tasting is like a whole meal. So we charge for food tasting if it's for a small group. And then if we get the function and it's a big group, then that amount that they paid gets taken off the bill. So there is no charge for food tasting in the end. But, you know, some clients, uh, they have three or four caterers and they all have food tastings and that's three or four meals that you have to pay for. That always is kind of a little bit iffy for the caterers because they have to supply and then they don't get the job. So they've given dinner to 10 people and that's not a cheap exercise. So you have to look at the client, you have to look at the job, and you have to look at the event and what's happening and then decide whether you're going to have the food tasting. And I think usually we would have a selection of items that we think they would, would suit the event. And then we have sharing plates, so they don't, not everybody gets all the items. You have one plate, a show plate that they look at, and then you cut the food up and pass it around so that everybody can have a taste. Because if you're tasting mm. the food... You can't eat four different meals. So you just need to have a little bit to decide. And then sometimes we can mix and match from the different menus, different items, until we get what suits everybody, the client, and also what what you can do for the function. You know, if you're doing a dinner for 7,000 people, you would not have scallops unless you had 700 chefs because you just couldn't get perfect scallops out to 7,000 people 
all at the same time. So you need to choose your menu to suit your guest list and the numbers. When you do these huge functions, I mean, I know that you've done functions from two people to 7,000. How would you do the, the plating? What's the best way to do it? Like you say, you can't do scallops for 7,000 people. It's just not logical. Would you talk us through the process of how the kitchen works? What would they do to serve the 7,000 people? How quickly would you be able to get it out? Hot and still tasting good. Well, you know, I think if you if you have large numbers, a lot of logistic work before you even decide on what's going to happen and how, what the menu is going to be. So you see where it is and then you have to look and see how far the waiters are going to have to walk to deliver the food because if it's far, you want to have hot food. So you have to make sure that your kitchen service area is close enough that everybody gets hot food. So lots of people, you have to have lots of service areas. So you have to create service kitchen areas that are close by. And then you have to decide on the menu, something that can be prepared and served and delivered quickly and efficiently. We did a huge function at Sun City once. And I had to, I had to walk from the kitchen to the furthest point and I carried food so that I could see if the food was still going to be hot when the furthest people got theirs. Then I had to decide what we could eat that we could keep hot on such a distance because you want everybody to be able to eat together. So the more people, the more service points you have to have and the more waiters you have to have to deliver it because you want everyone to be eating together. How many waiters would you use per table if you've got your function of 300 to ensure that the food comes out properly and service is good? The way you would serve it is you would have um, all tables, being, you know, the whole table being served at the same time, but it works out at about three waiters for every 10 people. So that brings us to almost as many service staff as it does guests. Sometimes, and if the menu's complicated, more service staff, because you don't know what's going on in the back. You know, every, depending on whether you're plating on the square or on the line, um, if you're plating on the line, every item that goes on the plate has to have somebody putting it there. And you don't have one person putting, doing a whole plate. So it goes on a line. So you, maybe your starch would go down and then your protein and then your vegetable, then a sauce or two vegetables and then somebody to wipe the plate and somebody to pick it up and give it to the waiter. So there are a lot of people in the kitchen that as soon as the last dish has gone out, they go home. And the poor waiters are there until the last guest goes home. So you put the first item of food and you pass in the plate down the line to the next staff and it eventually comes out to service. Yep. If you're serving on the square, how does that work? Each service person plates the whole plate. They have all the food around them. And that would only be for a very small group because it's quite a difficult thing to keep your hands clean, to keep the food clean, to keep everything because you are using every one chef is plating everything. So you're touching food to veg to meat to gravy. Yeah. So cross-contamination could be a problem there. It's going to be on the plate, but um, to get it nice and clean and sharp, the plating on the line That's is absolutely thinking, the way yes. to do Yeah, And, you know, one person can do two things. They can do something like the starch and the protein, depending on the design of the plate. But if there's lots of people, you have to have lots of stations because it's, it's just maths. It takes time. How do you do your portion control? How would you make sure that every plate looks the same, 
decide how many carrots somebody gets? How does that work? Always maths, logistics, portion, 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 portion. So everything is done or should be. You know, I don't know how other people work. This is how I work, is I count everything. I make sure that I have enough of everything. If we're doing the, the vegetables, they could be all prepped in bundles or piles so that every pile has got exactly the same. Three beans, two pieces of carrot, one piece of corn, whatever we're serving, every single person has got a cup or a portion or a bundle or a something so that they're all exactly the same. There's nothing worse than at the end of the evening, the last person is just getting a bundle of carrots and everything else that's exciting has gone out already. So it's all maths, portion control, counting, packaging, separating, making sure that everybody gets everything. It reminds me of a function that I worked with you in Pretoria at a country club. And we had gone into the kitchen, and I can't even remember how many guests there were. I think it could have been about 100. And we took a look at this pot of soup, and we said to the chef, where's the rest of it? He said, no, that's it. We then had to go and portion it out and showed him that actually he didn't have enough. That was fine. Then the next item was lamb chops. I don't know if you remember that little piece. Nikki, that night... That function still gives me shudders. You know, <laughs> I had to say to the guys so carefully, you need to count, you need to count. You need to portion it exactly right. And they were having lamb cutlets. So it was a, a little portion of three. And I went through to the kitchen and there was a big tray of the food. And there were some big ones and some small ones. And I said, no, you have to pack them properly so that the big ones cook at the same time. You can't have mixed trays Otherwise, the small ones are overdone and the big ones aren't, aren't cooked enough or whatever. I said, you've got to sort it. And then I counted. And I said, you're short. No, 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 we're not short. And I had told them to buy extra. And they said, no, we're not short. So I said, I'm telling you, you're short. And I counted again and they counted and they were short. And then I told them to sort it out and then I would be back. And I came back and I said, you're even shorter. And they don't think that... People walk past and there's a tray of par-cooked stuff and a lot of people sampled. More people sampled than they planned on. So eventually <laughs> we had to go and get more. And uh, fortunately, after some more samples, we had a couple of no-shows and we just had enough. Just, just, just. <laughs> I remember we were sweating on that particular function. We just kept on saying... Okay, cut it down to two per person. No more three on the plate, just two. Stop touching, move away. It It really was a nerve-wracking nightmare. However, the clients didn't know it, and and that's what the bottom line is. Clients don't know what happens behind the scene. I have a big grey streak of hair that belongs to that event. The soup was was a killer. And I think people don't always think about it. And it's not, chefs know, but you know, often you don't have chefs, you have cooks. And often they're not used to doing that kind of event or something on the menu is not what they're used to doing. Or they're used to doing buffets where they can just bring out stuff. I've worked with some venues where they they don't mind if the food changes halfway through. You know, they're serving one item and when that runs out, they just replace it with a different thing. For me, that's unacceptable. Every single guest has to have a choice of exactly the same stuff. You can't have the first people having something and the second group of people getting a different choice. So for me, I check and check and check. But some venues, they don't care. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think the biggest thing is working closely with the chefs. And I know that we have, in just about every venue, we work with the chefs. Some of the chefs, I think, get their noses put out a joint when you come into their kitchen and you sort of talk to them and say, this is how I would like it to be done. I'm not telling you how to cook it, but this is how I think it needs to be presented. And this is the what we've promised the client. How do you get around getting the chefs onto your side to see it that way? It starts off sometimes a little bit awkwardly. But actually, in the end, it's all fine because I think you you have to convince them truly that you want to give the client the best experience. And the chef in the kitchen is the one that's going to get the accolades, not me. I mean, nobody cares that I'm there. Nobody knows who I am. They don't yeah. care that I'm there. So it doesn't matter. So I'm there to make sure that the client gets what they want and that the chefs look good, the chefs shine. And I think that's the most important is we don't want their job. I don't want to take their job. So as soon as the chefs or the cooks realize, and it's not the executive chefs in the hotel groups, they know that I don't want the job. They know that they're secure in their job. But quite often in other smaller places where they don't have as many chefs, they might just have one chef and a group of cooks or just cooks that don't have the formal training, they're always nervous that I'm there to show them up. I'm not. I'm there to show them how we can do it better or how we can do what the client wants. Sometimes it's not better. It's just what the client wants. I know that we've worked at many functions. And, you know, being an event manager, I take the brief from the client. I pass it on to you. We go to a venue and the the venue event managers are so protective of their chefs. They don't want you to talk to them. They just, no, 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 no. If you give us the brief, so it goes from client to event manager to venue event manager to the chef. And you're very lucky at the end of it if the chef gets the brief of what the client is wanting. And isn't that where you come in to actually work it around? And by talking to the chefs, it makes a huge difference to the end result. Absolutely. I think... Quite often the event people, and it's not just the venue event people or the client event manager, if they don't love the food, they're not always so good about passing on exactly what the client wants or the experience that you want to give the client. Um, I was at a butcher the other day. I'd ordered a whole lot of stuff, and I went to fetch it, and it was it was just awful. I, I, I couldn't take it, and... The butcher, they called the butcher, and they called the head butcher, and then the blockman, whatever. They were all there. And I just said, you didn't love this food. You just didn't love it. You just hacked it. It, it just was it was appalling. And I said, I, I just cannot have this. I can't serve this food to my clients because it's just bad. And there was nothing wrong with the quality. It was just the cut, the presentation. They just, I want to say butchered it, but they were. So they just hacked it because there was no <laughs> love. And I think that's... The, that's the thing is you've got to transfer the love of the food for me from the client to the chef and sometimes in between the people don't love the food so that's missing but it's the same as for every other part of the event you've got to love the portion that you do so it's the decor the management the logistics you've got to love it so that you pass on the best experience so Kat now then the next thing that we need to look at is dietaries. I think every day there's a new a new something from a vegetarian to a vegan to a there's kosher, there's halal. How do you go about working all of this 
what are the factors that contribute and how would you work about doing the service at a function, bringing all of those that everybody gets what they've ordered? You know, funny enough, the, the first thing that I do when I get asked to work on a, an event is check the date. And then I check all the religious holidays that are around that date so that I can see if they're going to be people fasting or if they're going to be people that are going to have dietary restrictions. Like there are some people that are vegetarians on certain days or they certain weeks that they're vegetarians. So I check the diary first. And then I work on mm-hmm. who their guest list is going to be, if they're going to have guests that would fall into the groups that would be having dietary restrictions because of fasting or feasting. And then designing the menu so that nobody knows that you're taking cognizance of all of those things. So um, at any event that I do with a buffet, I make sure that I have two or three vegan dishes so that everybody can eat a vegan dish. I mean, it just means there's no animal product in it. Everybody eats those. But if you market vegan, everybody thinks there's something dodgy in it or it's not great if they are not vegan themselves. So you have to make sure that you cover I mean, I don't think people know what vegan is. Well, you see, only vegan people care. Um, Everybody else just wants to eat really great, tasty, good-looking, fabulous food. They don't care if it's vegan or not. But vegans care. So you have to make sure that their dishes are perfect for everybody else to eat, but actually conform to all their requirements. So I think um, I like to make sure that everybody, all the guest requirements are covered without everybody else realizing it. And also people don't want to have um, their food looking plain or ugly. I mean, just because it is a special meal, like if they have a a lactose problem or an allergy to something, their food shouldn't be ugly or put aside or just thrown together. I mean, it's got to be as fabulous as everybody else. If you're serving them a stuffed pepper, then stuffed peppers should be available for everyone, not just for those people. Yeah. But I know that we've had, on many occasions, we will have the, the buffet set up and we'll do the whole thing. And you get the vegetarians coming up and saying, well, where's my buffet? I mean, I know your typical answer is eat the salad, eat the veggies, eat the starch, and when you get to the brown dead meat, stop eating. You know you're a vegetarian. Don't eat the meat. How do you work around doing that same thing for a plated menu? Or We had a function once where we had over 60 different dietary requirements. And that sounds insane, but it's, it's because you would have people that have an intolerance, which is different to an allergy. So from those, you have to know exactly who has what for a plated meal, and you need and to know where they're that? sitting, and you need to know exactly how many people there are with those different requirements, which they, they need to supply when they respond. If you RSVP to an event and you have some kind of special dietary or health requirement, it's up to you to inform your host if you want to be catered to. You can't arrive on the night and say, hold on a second, um, I have an intolerance or an allergy and you didn't tell anyone. But then it's very easy after that to put it all together. It, It really isn't a problem. Anything can be done and catered for if you know it's going to happen. It just, it's, it's not a problem, ever. 
And then for that, obviously, you would need to bring in extra staff just to cater specifically for the dietaries. How would you run that from the kitchen side? Again, it depends if it's only a few people or if there's a lot. If it's a big group of people, you would have a big group of special dietaries. Then you have one station set up that just handles those people. And you, I mean, if it's a lot of guests, so, you know, a couple of hundred guests, you would have one chef plating those special meals. You would have a couple of waiters dedicated to plating those. And then you would have the maitre d' inside watching to see when the waiters are going to be going to the table with those people. Um, so you you manage from the kitchen what table, you know, where the people are going to be sitting, what table numbers they're going to be on. Sometimes you have your name, their names, so you print out cards with their names and their dietary requirement, and you listen for when the waiters are going out to the tables at the same time so that you can send out the special waiters with the special meals to the maitre d' to place them. But, you know, beforehand you go and see where they're sitting, see who they are, so that it's not a surprise. Nothing worse than knowing exactly where your guests are going to sit and then they change tables. <laughs> Look, I think we've had that on many occasions when you put something down. They say, oh, no, I've moved a place and you've moved that food four times. And by the time they get it, it's cold. And then actually we look incompetent because now we've served somebody cold food because they have moved or they're on the dance floor or Something like that, it just actually does mess with the kitchen, but there's nothing you can do about that. No, you just do the best you can, always. Then, Kat, the next thing that I want to know is, with all the dietaries, you obviously you've got kosher and halal. Do you bring certification in for that? Do we need, how, how do you go about getting all of that correct? Do we need to have it on sites? If it's a strict halal or a strict kosher meal, it actually comes sealed with tape. So... You get you get the food supplied by one of those certified caterers and it arrives sealed up in foil with tape. There's no getting around it. That's what it is. But I think you have to know also where you are, who the, the good caterers are, who can do it, who can do the food. I mean, I like to get the menu and send it to the specialized caterer and a, a show plate. I take a photograph of it and send it to them and say, this is what I would like it to look like. Because there's nothing worse than people having special dietary requirements and having totally different food. For me, it's the same thing as you now serve in a vegetarian next to a normal meal, and suddenly it looks better. So now I'm not a carnivore anymore, now I'm a vegetarian because it looks more exciting. But you wouldn't be able to cater for everybody to have both choices. So when you design the vegetarian meal, which is a very common request, it has to be exactly the same as the rest of the plate of the other guests that are having a regular meal, but without the dead animal on it. So oh, I think maybe you must take that piece out. Without the meat, chicken or veg on it. I don't know. I quite like the dead animal. <laughs> when I do plates for designing plates for special meals, I like them to be as close to the regular meal as possible. So that people are not looking over the shoulders and saying, oh my goodness, that looks fabulous. So I have all the vegetables exactly the same, just without the dead animal. So I always say to the chefs, if you're going to do asparagus, which is hugely popular and delicious and one of the, the special things that you just really want to eat, you can't just put that on a vegetarian's plate. Everybody has to have asparagus or no one has asparagus. 
because I know a lot of people that become vegetarian when the plate looks really good. The same way as a lot of people want to say their halal when the smell of that delicious curry comes through. And then I have to say to the halal caterers, do not serve curry if we're not serving curry. Because that's not fair. So I think it... Yeah, it needs to match. <laughs> it's just in the planning. It's just so much that goes into the planning before the food even lands on the plate. Kath, tell us about some of the exciting menus that you've created. I mean, I know that we, we use food trucks, we use silver service, there's buffets, there's plated meals. What are the exciting functions that you've done where you've created something that's just not normal? I think one of the nicest things is being able to introduce people to something new, but you always have to make sure that you have a lot of stuff that is recognizable. It's like going to a Bee Gees concert and they don't do any of their old stuff. You just feel cheated. So when you go to an event, you don't want to have everything new because what happens if you don't like it? So you have to have the bulk of the food, food that you would recognize. Yeah. And then some other specials that are just delicious. I found that um, introducing people to even standard stock boring food like couscous. Couscous is absolutely fantastic. It's really, really fabulous if it's prepared beautifully. Or not. Or not. Or it's just horrible. It just <laughs> coats your teeth and just is not good. So I want to introduce people to delicious couscous so that when they get it, they say, oh my goodness, I don't know why I've never had this before. Things like frike, which is just just fabulous in your mouth, has great feel, and it also fits with fabulous stuff, but it's a, it's a healthy grain. It's not popular, it's not well-known. So it's kind of exciting to introduce people to things like that. It's, it's nice to do things like desserts with black rice. It's exotic looking, tastes fantastic, is kind of not common. Um, I think anytime you do anything with black food, that's always a challenge. Oh, I remember the one thing you cooked before, black pasta with prawns with lemon butter. And that is Most delicious. <laughs> and that is squidding. It really is fantastic. But again, even with the squid ink, you have to make sure that the pasta stays black. Because sometimes they make the pasta too early or it's dry pasta. Then when you cook it, it goes a little bit grey. So you have to have more squid ink in it. But it is so delicious. And then when you serve it, that if you do a lemon butter sauce that's white, white, white. And pink prawns on the top. Oh. It is a visual dream. I mean, it's just beautiful. And then it tastes so good. So I think that, for me, is the ultimate, is if the food arrives looking beautiful and then tastes better than you expected, it just is such a treat. It's like a win. You think, oh, my goodness, this was, this was a great experience. I think I just love good food. So for me to serve it, it's a, it's a, a treat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I think is the main thing, is I think the visual is as important Absolutely. as the tastes. And I know that we love food. We really, I think all our husbands and families and what have you complain that we can be having breakfast and discussing the next meal and the next meal after that. And, oh, what about this? And try the next meal. It's just, there's always so many exciting tastes out there that we can, we, there's just not enough time in the day to actually eat Absolutely. everything that we like. 
give us one or two of your favorite recipes, something that the people can go home and just whip up quickly in their kitchen and say, oh, geez, I remember chatting to Kathy and she gave me this great tip and this quick little recipe and it's just to die for. I think one of the nicest trick things to do, I think, is the use of melon and ginger jam. If you're running late and you want to do something really special, a sauce on beef with melon and ginger jam and soy sauce turns the simple into absolutely fabulous, fabulous. You need to blitz it down or sieve it first so that you put the nice big pieces of melon out, prepare your sauce and then drop them back in again so that they are perfect and clean. But that's a really, really good secret ingredient that can turn an ordinary sauce into something mm. that's really fabulous. And that's a little bit Asian. So it, it makes it, you know, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of extra ginger doesn't hurt. Some soy sauce, some boiling water, a little bit of mazina or cornstarch. You've got a really, really, really great sauce. You know, I can, I'm not watching you at the moment, but I can just hear you salivating as you're talking about it. I just dream about these things. I so love the food. And I think a lot of times it's very, very simple. People always think they need to add too many things, too many flavors. If you cook butternut with sage leaves, that is just one of the best flavor combinations ever. Roast butternut drizzled with olive oil on top of sage leaves. And then when you turn them over, the sage leaves stick to the bottom and they get nice and crispy. And even when they look black, they still taste amazing. That is just a great flavor sensation, which is really, really simple. It's such a good thing. Sure, that really is awesome. I think that's probably it for about now. For me, it just has been amazing. And I'd love to catch up with you again next time and we can just discuss some more taste sensations. I would love to. But Kath, just a quick one that I I forgot to ask you early on and it really, it worries me, is when you're doing a function and you've got all this excess food, what's the situation about just actually donating it to people? How do you go about getting rid of all of this food? Because it's just wastage then. You know, a lot of the caterers have charities that they work with. A lot of the big venues have a health policy that they may not donate the food to any charity, also because of a health reason. So I think you have to look each time. And sometimes we've, we've had events where we've been doing conferences for three or four days and the guests are invited to attend on whatever day suits them. You plan from your RSVPs what's going to happen. And we had one event where we actually landed up with maybe 10% of people that were going to that said we're going to arrive, attended other sessions. So the last session was really, really empty. So the food hadn't even been touched. We didn't even put some of it out. And we took that straight away to a children's home. And they then had big pieces of roast meat. And that, that is whole food, and it was still at the right temperature. It was still safe. So it was very easy to just donate that food. But you have to be really careful because... Some events, the food is out for the maximum time that it can be out, and after that, it becomes degraded, and then it's unhealthy. So at the main thing, I think, is planning. You've got to plan so that you don't have lots of wastage. In the old days, we always had a lot of wastage, but you know, in the last 10 years or so, it's 
takes a lot of planning to ensure that you have your portions correct and you have as little wastage as possible. I would say you can donate in some cases, and there are lots of charities that caterers work with that they pick up the food and keep it at the right temperature and put it back into the fridges immediately so that it has a quick chill and is still safe for the people that collect it to serve to the homeless or the, the street children. And the health department, do they come out and do food portions and testing and take samples of the food? If we're doing an outside venue, a lot, a lot. All the shifts on outdoor events that we have, particularly with members of the public or um, at a public venue, all the chefs walk around with thermometers in their pockets because they have to keep checking the food to make sure that it stays at the correct temperature. But the health department comes to check and they can close you down. So fortunately, it's never happened to me, but it has happened. And I think people don't, unless they're working in the food industry, they don't realize that actually food does have a shelf life. Yep. Chicken can only be out for so long. Fish can only be out for so long. Yes, you can leave the potatoes and the starches and veg and that they, they can wilt if that's what it is. But actually, I mean, I know that we've worked on events where the guests say, well, just leave the food after another hour. No, it can't happen. But they don't understand that the whole thing is, well, I've paid for it, just leave it. But they don't realize the ramifications of if somebody gets sick or what happens because the client says, well, I didn't do the cooking. That is where I work a lot with the clients and with the chefs because the clients don't always understand. I, I have one particular event where... They complained that the food from this venue was always bad, and I knew that the food at that venue was always good. And then I checked with the event manager because they asked me to come in because they had been, they were kind of locked into using that venue, but the food was always bad. And they said, okay, would I come in and help them sort out the problem, see what it is? And after much investigation, I discovered that the problem actually wasn't the food, which I knew it couldn't be because the food is always good. It was because they don't plan their event properly. And it's not that the event planners haven't got it right, it's the guest speakers that don't know when to stop talking. So you would plan the timing and you would have dinner set for 8 o'clock, say, but then when 8 o'clock came round, there was still another one and a half hours of speeching. But the poor kitchen haven't been told that, so they're ready to serve at 8. And at half past 9, they're still waiting there to serve the food. That's why the food is not great, because it's been ready for 8 o'clock. So I think that is always, uh, and then people blame the kitchen, say the food wasn't good. So I think that is one of the mm. things that I've been really fortunate in doing is working with the kitchen and with the event managers and with the clients to make sure that we all know what's happening and that it happens when it's convenient for everybody. And I think that's bottom line for everything is just communication. Absolutely. Talk to everybody, make sure it's happening, keep everybody in the loop and that boils down to a great event at the end of the day. Sometimes they don't understand that the loop looks like a figure eight. And sometimes it just looks like spaghetti. <laughs> you just have to work with that. <laughs> well, Kath, that's why you do what you do. When you're good at your job, you're good. If you want to just maybe give out some of your information in case anybody wants to touch base with you, book you for your next client, and I'm very happy to take the commission from that afterwards. Thank you. That would be great. The company is Kathy, trading as Creating Great Memories. And my email address is Kathy, C-A-T-H-Y, at cgmemories.coza. Very easy. Thank you so much, Nick. 
My name is Nikki Kennedy, and I get to help make people's dreams come true. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.